0: Back in September, our teaching team sat down to consider our theme for Advent this year. We decided we would go with the birth of Jesus again. But beyond that, what aspect of Jesus' birth did we want to focus on this year? What do people especially need to hear in these closing days of 2023? Well, we got to thinking about the war in Ukraine about the political and ideological conflict in our own nation, about the rising levels of stress and anxiety in our society. So we pretty quickly found our way to peace as a theme for Advent this year. Now, little did we know that on October 7th, the terrorist organization Hamas would launch a surprise attack on Israel, brutally killing and wounding hundreds of civilians, and taking hostage a couple of hundred more, including many women, children, and the elderly. Israel responded with deadly force, bombing Palestinian neighborhoods in Gaza and sending in troops to dismantle and destroy Hamas. Nearly two months later, the conflict is far from over. We're all grateful for the temporary ceasefire that's allowed aid to get to those in need and for some hostages to be released, but we know it's temporary. So the surrounding nations and and superpowers of the world are on high alert, not knowing what will happen next and where it might lead. Experts tell us there are 32 active armed conflicts in the world today. So many and so varied, they've come up with categories just to keep track of them. Terrorist insurgencies, civil wars, drug wars, ethnic violence, and acts of aggression. But no matter which category a particular conflict falls into, the consequences are always the same. Death, maiming, displacement, trauma, and an overwhelming fear of when and where the next bomb will drop, literally and metaphorically. And even though we're thousands of miles away from that conflict, When we see Russia and China and Iran sidling up to each other, it has us all on edge. So if ever the world needed a message of peace, it's in December of 2023. And while we immediately think of peace in a global sense, our image for this series reminds us that peace is a personal matter as well. That every person in in every household, in every neighborhood, in every nation yearns for peace. Peace in our hearts, peace with each other, and peace for the world. So we'll begin our Advent quest today in a familiar text from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be asking ourselves what peace is exactly, and when, and where, and how it can be found. Let's turn to Isaiah 9 and see where it takes us. We'll begin with verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the seas along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, A light has dawned. Isaiah is prophesying in the days of the divided kingdom. Remember that Israel began as a united kingdom under King Saul and David and Jonathan. But after Solomon, it split north and south. Isaiah is living and ministering in the southern kingdom of Judah, but the winds of war are blowing through both nations. Uh, The neighboring nation of Assyria is on the attack, brutal and punishing, conquering one nation after another, getting stronger and stronger. Uh, This map gives a sense of the size of the Assyrian Empire bearing down on that northern kingdom. And in 722 BC, probably just after Isaiah pronounced these words, that northern kingdom fell and was virtually destroyed. So even though Isaiah is ministering in the southern kingdom, you can see that they were literally living in the land of the shadow of death. Imagine yourself at the beach on a fine summer day. I know that's hard to do right now, but but try. You and your gang are soaking up some rays, playing in the sand, splashing in the waves, soft breeze blowing, relaxed and carefree. Suddenly, a shadow falls across the beach. You look up to see storm clouds blowing in. Suddenly the whole scene changes. The air feels chilly. The water looks dark and foreboding, and you realize your time on the beach is now limited. That's how it felt to the people of Judah. Like like the world as they'd known it was about to come to an end. As the shadow of death loomed over them, it looked like there was no stopping the Assyrian juggernaut. And the conflict that was sure to come. So, as we're seeing here, it turns out that this part of the world, and the land of Israel in particular, has been a hotbed of hostility for a long, long time. The cl- conflict we're witnessing in the Middle East today is simply the latest chapter in an ages long saga. Now, we haven't said much about the current conflict between Israel and Hamas, so maybe this is an appropriate time for a a quick sidebar on the geopolitics of Israel from a biblical perspective. Uh, Basically, Christian people tend to hold one of three perspectives on Israel and its place in God's unfolding purpose. Uh, A popular view in church circles today emerged back in, in 1948 when Israel actually became a state. And the view is that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that that nation will play a central role in God's ultimate redemptive purposes for humankind. So those who hold to this view would argue that Israel deserves our unwavering Support. Now, as widely held as that view is, it has not been the historic view of the church. Up until about 100 years ago, the dominant view in the church has been that Old Testament prophecies regarding Israel have been and will be fulfilled spiritually in the church, meaning that the earthly nation of Israel is simply an independent political entity with no divine privilege or purpose. And so those who hold this view would argue that the modern state of Israel deserves no special favor from Christians. But then there's a third way that has emerged in recent decades, a sort of middle ground between these two extremes. And the basic idea is that the church is the new Israel, but that God hasn't given up on the Jewish people. So politically, that means that the modern secular state of Israel needs to be held accountable for its military actions, just like every other nation. But spiritually, we continue to pray for revival among the Jewish people and for the biblical peace of Jerusalem. From an earthly perspective, it's hard to dismiss the continuing existence of the nation of Israel, in spite of all the historical attempts to annihilate it, and the fact that it continues to be a focal point for global events. So each of us will have to come to our own conclusions and perspectives on what's happening in the Middle East right now, But, but those three views might help you sort out your thoughts and convictions. Whichever view you hold, I think we would agree that what's happening there is both tragic and troubling, and that the suffering is great in both Gaza and Israel. So with both that ancient and modern conflict in mind, let's get back to our text. Because here in Isaiah 9, Isaiah looks forward to a day when they and we will no longer be living in the shadow of death. A new day when light and peace will dawn on the land. Now, he hasn't used the the word peace yet, but but he will later in the text. And in these next few verses, Isaiah describes what that peace is or shalom, to use the Hebrew word, will look like. And the first thing he tells us is that shalom means flourishing. Let's let's look together at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Isaiah uses two vivid word pictures here. Farmers returning from the fields, their arms overflowing with grain, and soldiers returning from battle with the goods and property that rightfully belong to them. They're images of abundance, of plenty, of flourishing. So peace, shalom, in the biblical sense, isn't just the absence of conflict. It's having the resources to live a full and abundant life. Not just to survive, but to thrive. Our recent trip to Malawi reminded me that much of the world does not have the resources they need. Not enough food, not enough water, not enough health care, not enough education, not enough of anything that human beings need to flourish. We visited with a Muslim couple who had lost their mud-brick home in a cyclone last winter. They were living in a grass-thatched hut with hardly a roof over their heads. 700 million people live in extreme poverty in our world. Over half of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. It can feel overwhelming at times and, and unfixable. But it won't always be that way, Isaiah promises. Shalom is coming. He uses what's sometimes called the prophetic perfect tense, describing future events as if they've already happened. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. That's how certain he is that one day his people and all humankind will have everything they need to flourish. Well, the second aspect of shalom is justice. Let's look at verse four. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Isaiah here conjures up two images from Israel's history, two seasons in which they suffered injustice. Uh, The first reference to Midian recalls the days of the Judges when Israel was under the thumb of one conquering nation after another. The Midianites were especially harsh, destroying crops, slaughtering livestock, trashing villages. And then that reference to the yoke brought to mind their 400 years of bondage in Egypt when they were treated like beasts of burden Beaten by the rods of their oppressors. In both settings, they were robbed of their human dignity and freedom. Thousands of years later, injustice is still with us. And it's one of the factors in the Middle East conflict. Uh, We need to remember that the Palestinians are a displaced people group. And we also want to be careful not to confuse Hamas with the Palestinians. Hamas is a terrorist organization, period. The Palestinians are a people group. A people group that was forced out of their homes in Palestine by a UN resolution in 1948, but then were unwelcomed by surrounding Arab nations. They they are stuck in Gaza, which is one of the most densely populated and under-resourced regions In the world. Now, that certainly doesn't justify terrorism, but the injustice of the current situation makes peace an elusive goal. But just as injustice continues to rear its head in every nation on earth, including our own, ask any person of color, ask any woman, ask any differently abled person, ask any religious minority person, including Christians if the playing field feels equal and they'll have stories to tell of being overlooked or discriminated against or feeling unsafe or even attacked. It won't always be that way, Isaiah promises. Shalom is coming. The yoke of oppression and the rod of injustice will be shattered and there will be justice for all. So shalom means flourishing and justice. And then thirdly, shalom means harmony. No more war. Verse five, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. We understand that in our fallen world, taking up arms is sometimes a, a tragic necessity to protect the innocent, to put an end to evil. And we understand that Israel has a right to protect itself and its citizens from an enemy whose sworn purpose is to annihilate them. But but we also know that war is waged at great cost. Thousands have lost their lives in just a few weeks of fighting. And even if that war were to end today, the human and societal devastation will be felt for years to come. Well, Isaiah looks forward to a time when the instruments of war will be tossed into a pile and set ablaze. Nations will no longer take up arms against each other. All of earth's people groups will live together in peace and harmony. I've preached this text many times over the years, but but this time around, I noticed that verse 5 doesn't actually describe the weapons of war being no longer needed. It's it's actually the clothes worn by those who go to war, muddy boots and and bloody garments. That's what will be destined for burning. And with all we're learning about the debilitating effects of PTSD among those who've gone to war, it seems there's a promise here that even the psychological suffering of, of war will be no more. So, biblically speaking, peace, shalom, means flourishing, justice, and harmony for all people everywhere. And someday, Isaiah says, there will be peace on earth. But when, we want to know, and where, and how. And that's what Isaiah addresses in the next couple verses, beginning at verse 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. When it comes to peace on earth, the answer to the where and the when and the how questions is a who. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. In other words, if there's ever going to be peace on earth, Someone else is going to have to bring it. Human beings have never been able to make peace or keep peace on our own. We've tried. How many peace treaties have been drawn up only to be broken again? How many wars were supposed to have settled a dispute only to have exacerbated it? World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Oppenheimer, the man who developed the atomic bomb thought his invention would be the ultimate deterrent to war. The United Nations was formed to provide a venue for settling disputes without resorting to warfare. How many U.S. presidents have held a Middle East peace summit, showcasing the antagonist smiling and shaking hands, only to have it shattered by an assassination or a bombing or an all-out assault? And what's true on a global scale is true on a personal level as well. Why is it that human beings still can't seem to get along with each other? We're always choosing sides, always drawing lines. In the words of a recent editorial, we're always otherizing people who look or think or vote differently than we do, turning them into adversaries. That happens even among friends and family. How many of us are dreading a conversation or encounter with someone we, we, we don't get along with or have had a falling out with? Human beings, human governments have never been able to make or keep peace on our own. We're going to need outside help. Let, let's, let's, let's look again at the, at the visual image for our series. Uh, You'll notice that we're calling attention to the attic of the house, the place where we often store our Christmas decorations and memories. Now, maybe you store yours in a basin or a closet, but just work with us here. Early in the season, we head up to the attic in hopes and expectation of finding what we need for a meaningful season. And we'll, we'll tease that out a little later in the series. But notice in the image that above the attic and above the house and above the neighborhood is this expanse of sky and a star suggesting that if there's ever going to be peace on earth, it's going to have to come from somewhere and someone beyond ourselves. And that's exactly what Isaiah promises here. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. I noticed that on the one hand, that child will be born just like us, a human being. On the other hand, that son will be given, as in given by someone else, someone beyond us and greater than us. And don't miss the fact that this promised one is it's not a warrior or a politician or a diplomat, but a child. And those two words, child and son, taken together, are so disarming, so intimate, so so personal. Isaiah goes on to give us the name or the names of this child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we don't have time to consider all those names, but it's the last one that's most relevant to our conversation: Prince of Peace. Now, it's a curious name, because typically, princes wage war. The king or queen remains at home, safely on their throne, sending the prince off to do battle with the enemy to defend and extend the kingdom. But this prince is sent to wage peace, to resolve conflict, to turn enemies into friends, to bring about flourishing and justice and harmony. Now, Isaiah couldn't possibly have understood fully who and what this coming one would be. But he was so sure he would come that he once again reports to that prophetic future tense, announcing it as if it's already happened. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. As if the mere news of his coming was enough to bring peace. And that's the interesting thing about a promise. You see, on the one hand, a promise isn't the thing itself, but somehow it brings that thing closer. Let's say you're feeling lonely this Christmas. Maybe you're far from home and it looks like you'll be spending the holiday by yourself. So you're kind of moping your way through the season, not all that excited about it. And then one morning, you get word from someone you love saying they're coming. They just booked tickets and will arrive on Christmas Eve. Suddenly, everything changes. Now, they're not actually here yet, but the promise that they're coming, that they will be here, changes everything. It gives you something to look forward to and a reason to lean into the season. Well, that's how promises work. They're about the future but they change the present. We can make it through just about anything when we know someone's promised to make things right on the other side. And so it was that to a people living in the land of the shadow of death, Isaiah promises that it won't always be that way. Someone was coming, someone wonderful and mighty, And everlasting, someone like a prince. And sure enough, hundreds of years after he spoke these words, a child was born and a son was given. And on the night of his arrival, the heavenly chorus announced Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. They named him Jesus. And ever since that night, he has been waging peace one human heart at a time. Now, it's a pretty outrageous idea when you stop and think about it that a mere child, an infant, no less, could could bring peace simply by showing up. How would that work? Well, it turns out there's a Fascinating story told by a missionary of a previous generation that, that, that might help us understand what's being promised here. In the 1960s, a, a missionary couple named Don and Carol Richardson were sent to the nation of Papua New Guinea in the South Pacific. and Their mission was to bring the message of Christ to an indigenous unreached people group known as the Sawis, The Richardsons lived among the people, immersing themselves in the language and culture, trying to find a way to communicate the gospel message. But but they pretty quickly encountered cultural barriers that seemed to make that task impossible. The Sawis were a warring people who, who actually valued treachery and deception and violence. So when the Richardsons shared the Jesus story with them, the Sawis considered Judas the hero for betraying Jesus and considered Jesus the dupe for being outsmarted and then dying without even putting up a fight. Why would they want to worship a God who would give up his son and then allow him to be killed? Well, in the midst of all this, the village the Richardsons were living in was attacked by an enemy tribe. Blood was being shed on both sides, and, and at one point the Richardsons were about to leave for their own safety. But then something happened that, that changed everything. The chief of the tribe they were living with determined that the fighting had to end before these two t- tribes destroyed each other. And so in keeping with the custom of the Sawi people, the chief brought his own infant son and placed him in the arms of the opposing chief. That child would live with the enemy tribe for the rest of his life. And as long as the child lived, there would be peace between the two tribes. Because if a man would give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. And that infant was called the peace child. And suddenly the Richardsons had the cultural language to communicate the gospel message. When they explained that the God of heaven had given his son to humankind to live among them and even die for them, the Sawis were ready to trust and follow that God. Many of them came to faith in Christ. And some years later, the Richardsons completed a translation of the New Testament in the Sawi language, using the the language of the Peace Child. And decades later, the Richardsons returned to that island nation and found great numbers of Sawi people following Christ. The Peace Child brings new meaning to perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And how remarkable, how beautiful, that the Son given to us was a child. So, what does this promise mean for us? here an Advent of 2023? Well, a few things at least. For one, it means that you can find peace in your heart today. As Isaiah promised and the angels announced, Jesus came into the world that Christmas night to bring peace, one person and one place at a time. And he came to stay to live among us like that peace child and bring an end to our worrying ways. When you open your heart to Christ, he brings peace. Peace with God, peace with yourself, and peace with the world around you. So this promise means you can have peace today. But secondly, the promise means there will be peace on earth someday. Peace on earth someday. While Jesus came bringing peace, that peace won't come in its fullness until he returns. Comes a second time to establish his perfect rule over all things and all people in all places. Advent is as much about the second coming as it is about the first. So as troubling and, and overwhelming as the world's needs can be, we know that a day is coming when there will be flourishing and justice and harmony for all people everywhere. After a couple of days of driving through one under-resourced village after another in Malawi and realizing how many in the world have so little to live on, how enormous the task of relief and development is, at one point, I turned to Karen, the back seat of our Jeep, and said, makes me want Jesus to come back right now and put all this right. Someday he will, Scripture tells us. And the promise of that is enough to sustain us and strengthen us in the face of all that's wrong with the world and with us. So the promise means that you can have peace today, that there will be peace on earth someday. And thirdly, it means that we can be instruments of peace every day. We can contribute to human flourishing by by working for the common good in our everyday work, by caring for our loved ones and by serving the communities in which we live. We can pursue justice by speaking and acting on behalf of those who are marginalized and oppressed and discriminated against. We can promote harmony by loving our neighbors and our enemies and those who are different from us. And most importantly, we can spread the news about the Prince of Peace. Even this Advent, by inviting people to Christmas services and events, or by volunteering at those services and events to create space for people to experience a moment of peace and then by sharing freely of our resources with the church or, or, or directly to those in need. Our Christmas Eve offering this year will go to support Hope for the Children of Haiti and to come alongside Haitian immigrants in Boston through the Emanuel Gospel Center. Well, there's an old Stevie Wonder song that's been playing in my head all week long. Someday at Christmas, there'll be no wars. When we have learned what Christmas is for, when we have found what life's really worth, then there'll be peace on earth. Someday, all our dreams will then come to be. Someday, in a world where people are free. Maybe not in time for you and me, but someday at Christmas time. Well, the message of Advent is that someday has come because someone has come and will come again. Someone called the Prince of Peace. And the promise of that changes everything, beginning with you and me. Let's pray. How desperately we need this message today, Lord, in a world that seems as fractured and fragile as ever. Thank you for these beautiful words and this powerful promise given so long ago and yet it brings such peace and hope today. I pray, Lord, for those who are feeling troubled and anxious this season. May they find peace with the news of your coming. And we pray for those places in the world today where there is no peace or little peace that by your Spirit and through your people, you might bring a measure of peace to them in this season. Meet us now, Lord, as we gather around the communion table and remember your coming to live and die and rise again for and with us. In Jesus' name, amen.